podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct-to-Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to Celtic State of Mind, I'm Paul John Dykes and today I'm delighted to be joined once again by Jim Orr. So Jim, before we do anything, let's talk a wee bit about last night. We have mentioned over the last few weeks uh, the upcoming Scotland game, the playoff, which obviously uh, went ahead last night. Some of our panellists or guests weren't all that interested, they didn't have a great interest in the Scottish national team. Last night, last night's victory Jim has re-energised a lot of people's interest in Scotland, hasn't it? I mean, 22 years without qualification to either a, a World Cup finals or the European Championship finals, and it was all washed away with one excellent victory last night. I mean, I was talking during the week there about how Stevie Clark was able to organise teams and set teams up in systems and defensive uh, discipline and going back to times when Craig Brown was a manager and although they might not have been a spectacular team to watch, he got us into finals and Stevie Clark has done it. What was your thoughts last night? Well, the first thing I think international football or the Scotland team tends to divide the Celtic support. I think you've got a section where no interest in any international football at all. Uh, if it's not Celtic, they're not interested, uh, which is fair enough. And I think, I think when the Champions League started, I think a lot of fans thought Champions League is much better than when they watch Scotland games, so that's fine. And there's another section who, because it's the SFA, and mm. the SFA have done Celtic no favours, and it's perceived as the SFA team, and therefore why would you want the SFA team to win? That's that's another alternative view, so so that that's a reason why maybe those fans aren't interested. And funnily enough, the team across the city have got the same view, but that they think the SFA are doing them no favours, which is it's quite bizarre after the, the shenanigans in 2012. So... What that group are doing, what that section of Celtic fans are, are doing, if they like international football, they're maybe tagging on to another team and given the, the history and the roots of Celtic, understandably, the Irish team maybe they're more interested in them. And then you've got the other section, which is I'm a part of, it, hugely passionate about watching Scotland. I get the same uh, emotions and nerves, etc., watching Scotland as I do watching Celtic. Do you? Yeah. Ah, I've been going to watch. Well, I've been going to watch Scotland since the late sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm that old, and uh, 
my dad was a huge Scotland fan, and in my earliest memories of going to football, a couple of games in particular spring to mind. I, I wrote a play, it's all about getting plugs in for the plays. I wrote a play called Bender at Baxter, which was about the 1967 game at Wembley when Scotland beat their end world champions. And my first game I went to see was later on that year, somewhere around the November time. And through doing the research to the play, I found out that was actually Jim Baxter's last game for Scotland. So I saw Jim Baxter once, and it happened to be his last game. Mm. And then about, I think it was about a year later, nine months later, so Scotland, West Germany. Uh, see, back in the 60s, back in the day, for for, for you youngins that don't understand this, there's no football on TV. So you never seen the great players of the day. Now, you just, you know, every night of the week, you can watch Messi or Ronaldo, who are you know, two of the greatest players of all time. But back in the day, you know, nobody saw Pele, you know, nobody saw Beckenbauer, nobody saw Muller, these guys. So Scotland-West Germany was, was a huge game. Mm. Uh, and we were in the North Enclosure. And what adults used to do back then, and they wouldn't do it these days because the social would be all over them, was I was in the North Enclosure, so my, so my dad would take me down to the front and leave me amongst all the other kids and then wander back up, higher up the terracing type of thing. Now, these days, there's like, there's like over 100,000 people at the game. It's massive. It's mental. Uh, so I was down at the front and played West Germany, uh, and Muller scored, the great Gerard Muller scored in the first half, and Bobby Murdoch equalised with a couple of minutes to go from mm-hmm. a 25-yard shot, top corner. So, And the thing I always remember about Scotland games, they were always midweek games. And it's only maybe the 90s, possibly, that started having games at weekends. So they were always midweek games. They are always under the lights. Uh, I've always stayed within a kind of walking distance of Hamden, so, mm-hmm. so Scotland was always a big thing. And although it's changed now for a number of reasons, kind of back then, and maybe it's me looking with kind of rose-tinted spectacles, the kind of whole country kind of got together. So whether it was a Celtic player or a Rangers player, it didn't really matter. Obviously there's guys in the terrace that are going to boo some of the oppositions, but hey-ho, that's what, that's what tends to happen. Uh, there was a Scotland supporters club that started in the early 90s, which I, which I joined and through that, I was able to take tickets for Euro 96 or mm. down there at three mm-hmm. games, which is brilliant. Going to any major tournament is just, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, I mean, we've been lucky to go to Seville, you know, and if you ask, I'd imagine any Celtic fan of, of my generation, what's been the highlight in terms of going to a match at Seville? I don't know if you'd agree with that. Oh, oh, 100%. Because of the occasion and the colour and everything that goes with it. And going to a major tournament, it's the same thing. So you go down to... Uh, Villa Park played Holland down the way. So I was behind the goals and McAllister missed the penalty. Uh, and then you go to Villa Park again, you beat Switzerland 1-0 and you put out because England took four off Holland. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a ticket for one of the games in the World Cup in France. It was Norway down in Bordeaux. Uh, drew one each. Craig Burley scored equaliser. And I felt a bit like Seville with that one because what was good about Seville is that you had to pinch yourself to think, this is Celtic in a European final. Mm. You'd never envisaged that. Anyone who lived through the 90s, it was like a million miles away. And the high point of the night for me was when, when, was when Henry scored the first goal. He thought, we've scored a goal in a European final, and you're here to see it. And it was the same when Bill equalised. You're at a World Cup finals, and Scotland's just scored, and you're there. So I've always been a fan. Uh, no matter who plays, always been a fan. Want them to do well. Uh, it's been a long time, this whole 22-year thing. We've been kind of close sometimes. Uh, the only time I've been disillusioned, I've got less and less interested, but I still go to the games. I don't miss a home game, I don't go to away games. But the time I didn't go was when they appointed Alex McLeish. And I thought, well, I'm not going to he leaves because this was such a, a ridiculous appointment. It was. At the time, shocking yep. appointment. And it just shows you if they'd have stuck with him, we wouldn't have had the night that we had last night. 
I think the biggest disappointment about that was it was quite clearly uh, favouritism, nepotism. Oh, absolutely. And that then plays into the school of thought that it's an SFA thing, it's an SFA old boys thing. Yep. So when Steve Clapp was appointed, you thought, we've got a half-decent manager, we've got a kind of chance here. And not that we beat anyone exceptional, say a bit of a better team than us. And I think that showed what a good manager Steve Clark is. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. What, what, what we viewed last night was uh, a team that were more than some of the parts, which is a sign of a good manager. And you look at Declan Gallagher, you're looking at Stephen O'Donnell, and you're thinking, wow, you know, to go there, to play with that kind of discipline, mm-hmm. the performance as a team was outstanding. His substitutions were bizarre. And if we'd have got knocked out, I think that'd have been the main story today. Yeah. How, how bizarre those substitutions were. Uh, couldn't believe who he took off. And then, in fact, three of these subs get him out of jail, particularly Lee. So when I say the subs are, but I don't mean Lee. I mean, taking off Christie and taking off Dykes and taking off John McGinn. It was just John McGinn's the heart of the team. Mm-hmm. Christie was, was outstanding last night. Constant threat. And Big Dykes, I mean, Big Dykes was, was, was brilliant. Never gave him a minute's peace. Dykes has been an interesting one because we obviously seen the trouble that he gave us when he was at Livingston, Jim. But he's a he's a player that you know it's the right place, right time for him. He just he's the kind of focal point we need up the front. That I, I mean, we as in Scotland, that is not Celtic. Um, that it just works. He just fits in perfectly. And I think you know if you had said to someone a couple of years back that that would have been the case, no. they would have afforded it. No, yeah, I think we talked about this in previous podcasts that, that I you know I. I'm of the view that I think we need a kind of target man. I think our, our four forwards are a bit, are a bit samey in terms of height. So there's nobody... So, and we play a lot of stuff on the deck. We try to get round teams and through teams. And sometimes maybe there's a need just to go over the top of teams. And somebody like, like Dykes, I'm not saying Dykes, but somebody like that, a John Hartson, a Chris Sutton, a venue or a Hazelink, you know, somebody that just mix up a wee bit. It just adds a different dimension to our game. And we don't Off, have off that the dimension. four, Jim, it's a good point, because of the four that we do have... Who's the best in the air? A Yeti looks after Who has the aerial prowess? Because, I mean, Larson wasn't a giant, but what a, a leap a he Yeti had. looks half decent. Mm. And I, th- I, think, I, think, I think the thing about Lee that I like, Lee t- tends to find space. Mm-hmm. Lee's not going to jump a kind of six foot three centre half. He finds the space. The St. Johnson goal was a point in case. Yeah. Brilliant. Finds the space. And once the ball comes to him, you know, moving his neck back, getting the power, uh, right in the bottom corner. He's, I mean, as I've said before in the podcast, Lee's the key to your season. If you can keep Lee fit physically and mentally, he's my first starter. We get him plus somebody else. Ideally, Eddie, if Eddie keeps fit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're veering off into Celtic stuff and I'm sure we'll come back to this. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of last night, uh, once they scored, you think that's it finished? And then they just took over. And in some ways last night, <laughs> this is going to sound a bit daft, it was kind of like a, a kind of Celtic Rangers game kind of at the moment to me. That if you looked at Scotland last night, Scotland were a bit like Rangers in terms of well organised, knew what they were doing, uh, should have won the game. And then Serbia were a wee bit like a bunch of individual players, looked a bit disjointed, but got the goal back. And once they got the goal back, they dominated that extra time. And I think that's how we've been playing this season, Celtic, as individuals. Mm-hmm. And once we get a goal, we can spark into life. But if we don't get a goal, we look a bit pedestrian. But to get back to Scotland, uh, Fantastic penalties. Again, you bring on Lee Griffiths with three minutes to go. His first kick of the ball, he takes a penalty kick. He's the first guy to take the penalty kick. The one that's got the most pressure. What a player. To have, to have the, what was the word you used there? Kutzpah. Kutzpah, I'll let you guys look that one up. To have the Kutzpah 
to stand up to take the first penalty it was just unbelievably good. And then Callum comes up, does the same thing. Uh, McTominay, again, you've got a guy who is a midfield player. Steve Clark's identified we could play him at centre-back. Done a really good job last night. Maybe it fought for the goal, but hey-ho. Uh, Ole McBurnley, who I don't think is a player at all, but you have to say fair play for the penalty. Great penalty. And then Kenny McLean at the end. So, and big Marsh making the save. I mean, the Marshall one was quite bizarre last night. Because I thought he saved the penalty. Just jump about. And he went to the feet as if to say... Do you want to take it again? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, don't do that. Don't give him a decision. Just jump about with one. Because you kept looking at it thinking, he's going to the retake. They're going to go to VAR. Because it was so typically because Scotland. Because Scotland. VAR's yeah. going to do is now. Because we've lost the last minute goal and he saved a penalty, but VAR's going to knock us out again. Mm-hmm. And even about 10 minutes after the game, I'm thinking, someone's going to contact them and saying, no, no, VAR's actually said it's no goal. Bring us all back and we'll have to do it again. So it's been great and it's something to look forward to next summer. There's a few things, obviously, from a Celtic perspective, Jim, that I want to uh, um, pick your brains about. Firstly, you've watched the national team for decades, as you say, since the late 60s. And I think what we've got a sense of over the last few weeks, talking about the upcoming games and the last batch of games, is just Celtic fans were just frustrated that we were getting international players back, either injured or, or more recently with illnesses. So the focus has always been on Celtic, um, first and foremost. But I think it's only natural that a lot of people felt a detachment from the national side, um, having had this period of you know, failure for 22 years. And then there were certain periods within that where the tenures were questionable. Uh, you mentioned McLeish uh, being one of them. Uh, so we're now in a situation where you've got Stevie Clark in charge, he's a Celtic man, he's from a Celtic background, um, obviously related to Jim Clark, who's part of the, the Quality Street gang. So the, these wee things I find very, very interesting because Steve Clark was in the running for the Celtic job on at least one occasion in the past. Um, you said something very interesting before where you said that what he's good at is playing teams that are better than us but being able to compete and often defeat them. And I think he did that time and time again when he was in charge at Kilmarnock. He obviously has a a brilliant um, history, a brilliant CV of being the second guy or being the coach, you know. Um, And when you go down to Stamford Bridge, I mean, in one of the suites, there's a massive big mural of Steve Clark. He's a hero down there. So he, I think, is the right guy at the right time for Scotland. Do you think at any point in the past he would have been a good appointment for Celtic? Okay. In the past, I'm not talking about the here and now. Okay, the, the whole point, as I said, it's about getting more out of the sum of the parts. And and who would have said 10, 15 years ago that if we do qualify for a major tournament, we'll have two Motherwell players in the team? I know. Uh, I think it's just astonishing what he's done. <clears throat> as I said before, about Lyndon Dykes, I mean, you wouldn't think he's the most cultured player in the world. But as you said a minute ago, he does a job. Mm. So... And the fact he's playing Scott McTominay as a, you know, middle of a back three, it's, it's, it's mad. But the good thing about Scotland now, we've got players who are playing at the top level in England. We've got players for Liverpool, players for Arsenal, players for Man United. Mm. And in the past few years, it's maybe, you know, uh, West Brom and, and maybe Norwich City and players like that. So we've got guys playing for the elite teams in England. So it's that, 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 that can be nothing but really, really good for the, uh, for the national team. But in terms of the past... He's a good manager, so he would always take a good manager. Uh, it might be perceived as a bit defensive, but I think maybe the teams that he's had to manage, and maybe that's what they've had to do. They've maybe not been the bigger teams. They've had to do that, yeah. And I think if he was in charge of a bigger team, then 
I think there's no doubt he was actually very good. And he's also been it's an interesting backroom staff that he's picked. He's picked a guy, John Carver, who was at Newcastle for many, many years. It's a bit of a kind of left field appointment in that one, uh, which is good to see because I think what tends to happen in football, it's tends to be the same old faces that you get. You know, when when the, when it's Walter Smith, let's bring Ali McCoy and Tommy Burns in. Mm-hmm. You know, so you think, well, you know, we'll go for something a wee bit different because uh, football's changing. It's changing really fast. Uh, I think Steve Clark's kept up with that. And I think because who he's got as a backroom staff, I think that's a wee pointer uh, that he's on the ball. Uh, but yeah, I think to answer the question, I'm off that tangent there. Yeah, I think there's no doubt he would be a good manager for any team. Uh, and it's good that what I've put does after this summer will be interesting because uh, I think that's certainly put him back in the short window if he takes Scotland to a major tournament. Uh, there's no doubt because in fact everyone for the last 20 odd years hasn't been able to do it. Mm-hmm. He's done it with a group of players. Yeah, there's some elite guys, but some other guys who are, you know, pretty ordinary players at the end of the day. You mentioned the two boys at Motherwell. I mean, there was a spell there during pre-season where O'Donnell didn't even have a club. Uh, obviously started off at Celtic. Stephen O'Donnell went to Partick Thistle under Jackie McNamara and Simon Donnelly before uh, making the move that teamed him up with Stevie Clark eventually at Kilmarnock. Now, when you look back, Jim, again, I've not been an avid follower of Scotland in terms of going to games throughout my life, uh, with my main focus being on Celtic. You hear stories not only from fans but from players in relation to the the treatment of Celtic players, uh, not only by the selection committee as it once was, but of the actual fan base. And was that? I mean, was it that bad back in the day that you know Celtic players would be getting booed? It was very noticeable. Mm. You really call it bad or not? Don't know, but it's very noticeable that. Uh, and that's why I think I think I think having the Champions League has kind of changed. I, I think. I mean, I don't have a. I know of the demographics of who comes to watch Scotland, but I think since the Champions League kicked in, the two big Glasgow clubs have got a bigger thing to look forward to. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to spend your money, and it's, football's very expensive these days, uh, for a trip going across to see Celtic in France, or going to watch Scotland and overplay in Norway or something, you're going to pick that. So I think finances has something to do with it. I think the glamour has something to do with it. But again, to answer the question, uh, yes, it was a big issue uh, an issue back in the day, uh, kind of understandable back in the day, I think as well, because you tend to be a bit biased towards your own team. I thought Ryan Jack was outstanding last night. You know, there'll be lots of Celtic fans maybe watching the game last night, wanting Scotland to win, maybe Ryan Jack not to do particularly well. Uh, I want everyone to do well. Uh, and as I said, back back in the day, maybe again, rose-coloured spectacles, it seemed to bring the nation together. Now, whether that was always manifested at the games, maybe that's a different thing. Uh, but certainly some things happened back in the day that were a bit questionable in terms of uh, the SFA again the bit about Dalglish was going to you know have the, have the most number of consecutive games and he was left out and made a sub for no apparent reason yeah. so, so that's a kind of questionable thing and as I've maybe said before on, on, on the podcast it'd be great to get a, a kind of insight into some of the stuff if you could peel back some of these layers to actually find out what's the logic behind mm. some of this kind of stuff mm. Uh I think a lot of Scotland fans are coming from uh, the smaller clubs because that's their big chance to to go and watch you know a big game overseas games they've not got the European football you're right Jim that's a great point so I think you find that I think uh, again without knowing the demographics uh, I think the kind of East I think Uri area I think the kind of Fife Tayside Aberdeen Inverness kind of thing I think if there was a 
I noticed a few goes to Scotland games, I think there'd be quite a high percentage of them as opposed to ones in the central belt. Mm. Uh, and that's why I think there's more of a case for actually moving the games around the country. Just going to say yeah, I, mean, I think Hamden's a terrible, terrible stadium. I love within walking distance of Hamden and uh, and that's what makes it easy for me to go to Scotland games. Uh, but it's a, it's a terrible stadium and it should be demolished, uh, basically. Uh, don't spend any more, any more money on it at all. And take the games around, take the, games around the country. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to Murrayfield, I'd take the games around the country. And as long as the two Glasgow teams get that kind of one big game here, one big there. If I play in San Marino, they take that pit to Easter Road or Petaudry or wherever. Or East End Park. Or East End Park, if we're playing San Marino's B team or whatever. Uh, so I'd take the games around the country. It's also good for, especially if you're coming from Fife or Dundee and, and stuff like that, travelling down to Hamden. Uh, and I think that's the kind of good thing, I suppose, about playing games at a weekend. That, you know, if you're playing a game on a Saturday afternoon, that's that's okay for somebody living up in Dundee and Aberdeen. But if you're playing games at half past seven on a Wednesday night, which it used to be, <clears> I mean, I was uh, a fan and went around the country watching games, you know, a kind of friendly game against Switzerland up in Aberdeen. I would go to that and take a half day off work to go and watch this friendly up in Switzerland. I don't do that now. I tend to, if it's not in Hamden, I tend not to bother. Uh, but what was the point? Take the game around the country, uh, get rid of Hamden. It's a dinosaur. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the reason I said East End, I think, and someone might be able to correct me if Mikey's tuning in, uh, Dunfermline fan, Mikey Mikovic. I do recall a game coming to East End Park, and the reason I bring it up, I think it was under 21s. Remember that fantastic side in the early 90s, Jim, with Jerry Craney, Ray McKinnon, that type of player, Phil O'Donnell was part of the side. Did they not get to the semi finals of the European Championships under Craig Brown Did- before he took over? The, the main job No, I just thought we played Wales just before the 98 World Cup at Rugby Park mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I'm, I'm all for taking the games around the country uh, I'm all for everyone getting behind the national team totally understand why people might not want to do that for the reason I said earlier uh, but it's exciting when it's your country and they're going to a World Cup or they're going to the Euros uh, I mean back in the day again again uh, showing my age thing again my Favourite World Cup was 1970, uh, way before your time. I was 11 in 1970, and we got a colour TV, and that was sound a bit bonkers to some of the younger kids. Just now, what do you mean a colour TV? Well, we used to have black and white TVs back in the day, so we got colour TV, and all of a sudden you watch... This week on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, direct-to-consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Pele in colour mm. and Franz Beckenbach in colour. It's in Mexico and the kickoffs are like half 11 at night and you're going to school next day but you're up at 1 in the morning watching Pele. It was just unbelievable, the colours, the teams, the England team that won the World Cup in 66, the Bobby Charlton's, the Bobby Moore, the Gordon Banks save and all that kind of stuff. So you're like a hook then, once you see that, and then 74, we qualify for 74. And talking about football memories, and I, I mentioned in a previous podcast, I'm involved in a, a charity called Football Memories. And if you just sit down and say, tell me your, your best 
top three football memories. One of my three would basically be when we beat the Czech, the Czech team in 1973. And my old man managed to get tickets for the centre stand. So I went there with my old man and his father as well. And we went to one and we go to the World Cup. And it's like we hadn't been there for 16 years. So mm. it's similar to what we've had there. But back then it was easy to qualify. And back then in 1973, we only had the Czechs in Denmark in our section. And all we had to do was win three games and we were there. So we beat the Danes home and away. Uh, the Czechs dropped a point to the Danes and we beat the Czechs and we were there. And then we lost the Czechs in the last game. It didn't matter. That's how easy it was to qualify for tournaments in there. So when people maybe say, well, it's not like the old days when we used to always qualify, it was certainly ten times easier. Because what's then happened, certainly following the, the kind of late 80s with the fall of the Berlin Wall and all these Russian... The, the, the countries that then came out from Russia and Czechoslovakia and all of a sudden we're playing Slovenia, Slovakia, mm-hmm. Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia. All of a sudden it becomes 10 times harder than it was before. So it is a big achievement to qualify. And you saw that by the players last night. Rankers was crying. I'm going mean, to come on to Christie. Was crying. Yeah, I was going to come on to that. I mean, Ryan Christie obviously is one of the, the main topics of today's discussion. Jim, just going back to that game, 73, but was that not George Conley's international yes, debut? Yes. That was his debut, wasn't it? George Conley's debut. We lost a goal after about 10, 15 minutes. Ali Hunter was in goals mm-hmm. and right across him and you're thinking, well, here we go again. And a guy called Jim Holton, he qualifies before half-time and then Jordan comes on and scores the winner. Uh, I was at the game, but that was, that was on live. So there was very, very few live football matches. And that's mm-hmm. why I used to look forward to the World Cup. The Euros, not so much. The Euros weren't covered live. Maybe until sometime in the 70s. So the World Cup was always a big thing. And... and Sound like an old man here. The kids are spoiled these days. You know, you can watch, every, you can watch Messi, Ronaldo. You can watch every game they play. Everything's Levin so accessible. Yeah. Hit a button, there it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that goes for us as well in terms of Celtic. You know, I know that we're a bit anti-Sky, haven't we? They've not covered the Hibs game a week on Saturday, but you know we're pretty spoiled that usually in a normal season you can watch every Celtic away game on Sky or on BT Sport. But back in the day, imagine being able to watch the Lisbon Lions on your telly live. You know, to see Jimmy Johnson live, you know, people didn't have that. You know, that was like a weird science. Because that would be interesting because one of my uh, theories, because I get back to the plays, uh, the latest play that I've written is called Ben Alberti, and we get back to 65. And um, in that Scottish Cup run, Jimmy Johnson only featured in one game in that Cup run. Mm-hmm. He wasn't played in the final, so Jockstein didn't want to play him in the final. You then say, well... If you were watching the Lisbon Lions back in the day, people a bit older than me, what was Jimmy Johnson like? Well, we know on his day he was a world beater, but how often was he like that? And what was a typical, typical Jimmy Johnson season in terms of the games he played? Now, one of the things we've talked about on the podcast the last few weeks about how inconsistent some of the players are, <clears throat> and Moy is one of these guys yeah. who have said one game is a 2 out of 10, next game is a 9 out of 10. Uh, it was a 9 out of 10 last Sunday. So if you were a Celtic fan watching the Lisbon Lions, what would be the assessment of Jimmy Johnson? Not not like when he's at peak, when he's when he's ripping teams apart. But how often did that happen? Did that happen? Imagine having social media back then, Jim. Oh, I dear me. Well, the thing is, he's he's he's, he's, he's a weak point for you because I've done the research with this stuff. If you go back to '65, Jock Steen comes in, and this will maybe lead us on. Maybe I'm jumping ahead here, Paul, in terms of the debate we're having about the manager just now. Do you stick or twist? Right. Because my point here, and I made the mistake of looking at the comments last last week, 
And the well, the comments this week, just just to, before you go into that, you've been likened to a Hollywood A-lister this week, right, Jim. So yesterday, blind yesterday uh, we had Stevie Mullen on, who's been compared to uh, Robert De Niro from time to time, and you have just been compared to Bobby Duval. So cool, I don't. Know. There you go. So I've got me a point there, Paul. Uh, so do you stick up to us with Neil Lennon? Made the mistake of looking at the comments last uh, week. Because you, you told me that the vast majority of them were all for twisting, were all for getting a new manager in. Mm. So I was keen to see what people said. And Stevie made a great point yesterday, just at the very end, about what's really good about the podcast is you're getting people on with different opinions. Yeah. And we're all pulling for Celtic, and we all want what's best for Celtic. But at the end of the day, they're just opinions. So whatever I say isn't true, false, right, right wrong, fact or fiction. It's just my opinions. And you hope that Celtic do well. I'm looking at the comments, people saying, this guy's an idiot, this guy's deluded, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So I'm thinking, well, you know, if I say you want to comment, I think there's loads of phone-ins you can call people. And some of the pundits on them, I think they are idiots, I think they've got an agenda. So if you want to get angry, you want to have an argument, I would suggest that you do that. It's great to have as many comments as possible coming mm. in. But I'm sure if I sat here and, and Paul says something that I disagreed with, which he has done, and I say, you're an idiot, you're a clown, you don't know what you're talking about. I may get a slap. I may not ask, be asked back. So, you know, if you're going to debate something, you can completely disagree with what I'm saying or, or Stevie or any of the panellists or your, or your guests or yourself, but your opening gambit is I completely disagree with this guy. You don't have to go down this route. And yeah. in fact, I actually get back to two or three people and one guy was good enough to come back to say, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And I said, you're okay. That's fine. It's just a difference of opinion. Uh, but the point I was going to make was Last week, I said I would tend to stick. Mm -hmm. And as I explained to the guy on YouTube, get back to, at no point did I say that I was a fan of Neil Lennon. Because I was called a fanboy of Neil Lennon. Yeah. And the point I was making is, if you weigh up all the facts just now, changing a manager could be quite disruptive. And if you're going to stick, you're actually sticking blind. If you're going to twist, you're twisting blind. right? And if you twist and the answer is John Kennedy, you'll say, well, I didn't want that twist. No. So you'd have to twist it in a certain way mm -hmm. because the theory is that if you twist, it gets better. So let me give you some facts about Jock Steen, who is without doubt the greatest ever Celtic manager. Jock Steen comes in in March 65. First game, we go to Broomfield, we win 6 nothing, and Bertie Old scores five goals. So you said social media then. So social media is back then. You're thinking, wow, that's us done it. Right? There were seven more league games between then and the end of the season. 1-2, Drew one, lost four, right? Including a 6-2 defeat to Falkirk, right? If you had social media back then, who's this clown Jockstein? Who appointed him? Get him out. And the only point I'm trying to make is there's no guarantee that if you twist, it may not work out in the short term. Obviously, Jockstein gets it right eventually, mm -hmm. but you're coming in and you're trying to figure out who your players are, who you can trust, who you may not can trust. And maybe because Jimmy Johnson only appeared in one Scottish Cup tie out of six, Jockstein didn't trust him, possibly. Who knows? But the point I'm trying to make is that you know, there's no guarantee that if you twist. What was that? What was, it, what was the question you asked me this time? <clears throat> no, we've gone into the we've gone into that discussion, Jim, and I think it's we're at that stage as well where we will discuss where we are here. It's not the midpoint stage of Ryan the season. Ryan Christie was crying. That was it. Ryan the, Christie. The, the point I was just to finish that one is that when have you ever seen a Celtic player cry in the last few years? You know, we've won the Invincible season, we win the treble, we do it again, we do it again. I've never seen anyone cry. 
I thought it was an astonishing interview. Starts crying. It was. Andy Robertson comes on and he's he's about to cry. And Stevie Clark admitted Stevie as much. Clark was yeah. much. So that's. I think that shows the magnitude of what they achieved last night. And I saw somebody in social media and Twitter saying that you know, all they've done is qualified. You know, what's the guy crying for? And I just think it's a it's a, it's a huge achievement. We went there as underdogs. I thought we'd lose last night. I was convinced we would lose uh, because it would be typical Scotland. We go that far and we lose maybe one or two now. Well, I think if you were to go back on the old tapes, if you still do that, or just check the YouTube channel, I actually predicted, Jim, that we would draw and we'd go through on penalties. So, you know, I'm so not That's why you're man. in the position you are. That's why you've got the thick skin and have the thin skin. With what about all the ones I got wrong? No, but the point on, the, on Christie's, a brilliant point that you make. And just before your arrival, I was chatting to Stevie Mullen, the aforementioned Robert De Niro lookalike Stevie, um, who was in yesterday and he was his usual brilliant self. And Stevie was talking about how we continually go on about the modern game and how much, I mean, I, I think you've, you've touched on there about the access we have to football. I think that's brilliant. I actually think it's great. But there's a flip side of that. And the flip side is that the footballers become untouchable superstars, celebrity style, um, you know, they're of a generation, Jim, that they don't walk from Celtic Park to Barrafield and maybe talk to you on the way up the roads. And there, there's such a disparity in the wages between the working classes and the footballer. And you sometimes wonder if it really matters. And I don't mean their career. There's been a lot of questions over the last few weeks. Do you think Eddie cares about 10 in a row? You know, you've heard that. And what we saw last night, and this is a group of players, like you rightly say, who there's there's a clutch of those players who are in the top league in England. And it showed you what it meant. It actually showed you the, the actual crux of why you and I fell in love with football and how they fell in love with football. And the passion and the desire and all these things and the emotion. And Stevie made that point earlier on today, and I can't agree with him more. Everything else, you know, the money and the fame and the celebrity and all that, just it just washed away when Marshall saved that. This week on the Marketers Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct to Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Penalty. Um, and by the time they're speaking to Ryan Christie at the end of the game, I mean, it's almost a tear-jerking moment to watch him. You've got Primo Scream tweeting about it last night. You've got Liam Gallagher tweeting about it this morning. Ryan Christie, for me, and I've said it all season, and I've been told, going back about criticism, I've been criticised for, for being a Ryan Christie fanboy all season because I can't see his deficiencies and I stand up for him. And, you know, people see he's a prima donna. It's all about Ryan Christie. Well, see, when he gets that ball from McGregor last night, if he wasn't the player that he was, yeah, a wee bit greedy, a wee bit selfish, we wouldn't have scored that goal. That's what he's got in his locker, Jim. Well, he's been he's been the best player this season by a mile. Uh, the most talented player is Eddie. But Christie's the one that's been doing it this season. And I'm going to quickly get back to the Glasgow derby. Who are the two guys that are missing? Christie and Eddie. Again, that's why when I talk about do you want to stick or twist, I think there's lots of reasons why we should stick. What I'm not trying to do is defend all the poor performances we've had because they have been poor. Uh, some of the individual performances, they have been poor. But 
But Lenny's still putting points on the board. And for me, that's the most important thing. And you could be of a school of thought that says, well, if you keep playing poorly, eventually it's going to catch up with you and you're mm. going to start dropping points. And I think because of the nature of the 10, and I said last week, the 10 is smothering everything. Because of the nature of the 10, I think if we drop another point, I think it might be difficult not to twist. But if we do twist, then hopefully we're going to twist to the right person. And I'm not so sure we'll end up with somebody who the fans actually want. So I listened to your podcast the other day with uh, Kevin and the point about the elite managers, I actually thought about that the other day and I thought, what is an elite manager? You know, and then I thought, was Martin O'Neill an elite manager? My opinion, just an opinion, would be no. My opinion was he was an up-and-coming manager and he punched above his weight with Leicester City. And I started thinking, who's the modern equivalent to Martin O'Neill? Mm-hmm. Maybe it is Eddie Howe, you know, in terms of taking a club at Leicester into the top league and keeping it. He won a couple of league cups. But, you know, unfashionable team and he's kept him in the league for a few years. Mm-hmm. Eddie Howe's maybe the current, maybe he's not. So I'm not so sure he was an elite manager because who would you consider an elite manager? Like Pep and, and Klopp, are they elite managers? Because I don't think Rodgers well, is, at, is at that level. You know, maybe I'm, pl- maybe I'm splitting hairs here. Because uh, you then start thinking about levels of management then. So yeah. who would you put into which box type of thing? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so, and the thing about Neil Lennon, I feel, uh, said before, I made a chat beforehand about Neil, Neil Lennon's win ratio is phenomenal. Uh, I did some quick uh, look at look at the stats for the past few, few seasons. Uh, the invincible season that we had, we put 102 points on the board. That was an exceptional season. Why was it an exceptional season? Well, it might have been the manager, but Sinclair was on fire mm. and Dembele was on fire. So we put 102 points on the board. What did we do next season? 82, I think it was. I don't know. 106 plays 82. In that season, we dropped 24 points from one season to the next. So while I think, you know, hindsight's a useful thing, it's obviously a useful thing, maybe our view of that manager, maybe it's a wee bit higher than it actually was. So how could you have 24 points less within a season? And if our rivals... Had to put up a decent show. That would have been a much tighter league than it was. And his performance in that season on a points-per-game basis was worse than the two seasons with Ronnie Dyler. Right? So we tend to look back and think, well, he was, he was a great manager. He obviously is a good manager. Elite, I'm not so sure, actually. because He was at a job at the time. An elite manager should have been at a job. I'm going to take you back, and you'll remember this anyway, 2006, Rangers appointed a guy called Paul Le Guin. Mm. And Paul, again, maybe he wasn't like the Pep Guardiola of his day, but he was a guy who was much sought after. And it was a huge coup to get Paul again over at Ibrox. And he lasted four months before they got the sack. He signed a whole lot of duds, including a guy called Sebo. And Sebo then became a chant. So anyone who missed by miles, the Sebo chant goes up. So here's Paul again, who's one of the hottest properties in European football management, goes to Ibrox and lasts four months. He'd actually qualified for the next stage of the UEFA Cup, as I think it was called back then. But the league form was terrible and, 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 and the players didn't take to them. So what if we appoint a modern Paul Le Guin and it goes like that? We think we've twisted right, but it turns out wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always go back to the kind of disruption factor. Because there's, there's two aspects of winning the league. You put points on the board, as many as you can, and you hope your rival or rivals don't put as many points on the board. And you've got no control over what they do, apart from when you play them. And this season, what's happened this season, 
is we've lost one game against our rivals and that's the three points that more that we've lost. And as I've always said before, if I was Neil Lennon and you were going to sack me for that, I think that's harsh. And that's not me endorsing performances or being a Neil Lennon fanboy. I just think that would be difficult. And the story I was telling you before we came on was that, again, plugging my plays again, Bender like brought back was about us stopping the 10. And I, I knew all the facts and figures around that season because I spent forever looking at them. And I looked at the season before that. And in 95-96, was the first season we went back to the redeveloped Celtic Park under Tommy Burns. Tommy Burns, one of the most popular Celtic men of all time. And the football we played in 95-96 was literally the best since the Lisbon Lions. Exciting, fast-flowing, tons of goals, brilliant to watch. Van Hoydonk, Cadetti, Di Canio, Simon Donnelly, Vico. Brilliant, brilliant football. And we put 83 points on the board. And any other season, that'd have been good enough to win the league. But the bit we couldn't control, the other guys, they put 87 points on the board. So we lost it by four points. And in the head-to-heads with our team, we drew three and we lost one. We only lost one game in the whole season. That was the game we lost. If we'd have beat them that game, we'd have won the league. So when you talk about, do you want performances, do you want results? What a brilliant team. Brilliant performances, but came up short at the end of the day because the other team did better. And you have to take your hat off to them to say, well, we did the best we could, but it wasn't quite good enough. That was eight in a row. Then going to the next season, we're, trying, we're going to try and stop nine in a row. They put 87 points on the board. The next season, they put on 80 so we maintain our 83, we win the league. What do we do? We put 75 on the board. Right? They've come down by 7, we've come down by 8. We play them four times and we lose every single game. We lose the league by 5 points. If we'd have beat them instead of them beating us, we'd have won the league again. Mm-hmm. And that's 9 in a row. And Tommy Burns has to go at that point in time. We bring in Wim. And what we're going to see next is, is Wim Janssen, Murdo McLeod, Harold, Henrik, Burley, Legends at the club now for what they did. They stopped the 10. But how many points did Wim put on the board? 74. He put on one less than Tommy Burns. He didn't do as well as Tommy Burns did. But how many points did the guys across the road do? 72. They went from 80 to 72. They blew it. They blew it. Because if they'd have maintained their standards and get 80, they've won the league. Or 87 from the previous year. So there's two aspects to this. And if you look at this year's forum... Their form, their results, never mind form performances, their results have been outstanding. Their results are almost at the level of the invincible season. And we're not that far behind. And that's on a points per points match per, basis. Points per, points per game basis. What are they yeah. averaging 2.7? They're doing 2.7. The invincible was, was 2.8. And in fact, Lenny's 10 games last season, from, from the turn of the season, that was 2.8 as well. So that was, I think the invincible season was, was 2.8. Last season was 2.8, that second half of the season, and they're doing 2.7. So if we end up losing the league, which hopefully we won't, because they put a lot more points on the board than us, I mean, if we, if we were to draw the next three Glasgow derbies and win every other game, and they win every other game, and we lose the league by three points, it'd be hugely disappointing. But you'd have to say hats off to them. They've, they've kept the consistency going. Difficult though that would be to say. And it would all have came down to the game we played a few weeks ago when we'd half a team missing due to covid and with Jamesy Forrest out, and with Chris Julian out as well. So I'm not making excuses, not trying to make excuses. I'm just saying that if you look at the numbers, and I'm not trying to do a Celtic by numbers because these guys are far more complex than, than my simple analysis here, the numbers tell me that we're putting points on the board. The performances aren't good because the other thing I talk about is, is this, uh, 
when you're watching a game, until you get three goals up, you're enduring the game. It's an endurance. Once you get the third goal, it's excitement. It's uh, enjoyment. And the last two games I've played in the league have been carbon copy games for me. Uh, not not league, the, the Aberdeen Cup game and the Motherwell League game, the last two uh, domestic games I've played. Because in the Aberdeen Cup game, they came out as in the first 10 minutes. As I said last week, we, we get through that just now these are a few good balls across the box. We get a grip of the game. We score a goal. Confidence goes up. Score another goal. Confidence is huge. And if we've got a third goal, it's game over. And you leave endurance and go to enjoyment. We didn't get the third goal. And the second half was, wasn't good at all. It was poor. We ran out of legs. We were tired. We didn't make substitutions. Uh, we didn't. It wasn't good game management. They didn't score. You know, there was lots of goal on scrambles. And, and Frimpong blocked one. And Duffy blocked one. But they could have quite easily scored. They didn't. Fast forward a week, carbon copy game. Mother will come at us in the first 10 minutes, which opens up the space for us. We get a goal, we get another goal, we're two goals up, and we're playing great. Maybe giving away too many silly free kicks outside the box, but we're playing really good. And then we have that fantastic move, where big Tam Rodgick comes up at the park, and Chris has got the chance to make it three just before half-time. Because he scores that goal, we move into the enjoyment section mm-hmm. of the game. We can relax the second half and watch the game. We come out and it's a carbon copy of the Aberdeen Cup game. No substitutions are getting made. The team looks really leggy. Then there's that horrendous tackle. It's the Marketer's Report. This week, Patrizia Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on the difficult task of building and retaining consumer trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. The best thing for us to do is to build a relationship with our consumers. And if those consumers have a relationship with the DJs that are on air, then we want to build on that. House of the Dragon, which was one of our most successful, if not the most successful campaign we've ever done for a show, audio was a core part of that. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. Not just a media company, iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. You've covered quite a lot this week. That should be a sending off. Mm-hmm. And 2-0 playing things, 10 men, that's almost enjoyable. But maybe not quite. And then they score the goal. Because you know they're going to score the goal. You know they're going to score the goal because how we are playing... And getting back to Moy again, you've got Moy who, who's a 2 out of 10 against Sparta. Personally, I wouldn't have played him last Sunday. We do play him. He scores two goals in the first half. He's anonymous for the second half. And if I think I'm making changes, I'm thinking, take him off. He's doing nothing. He pops up with the goal. So what do I know about football? So I think we've been, we've been saved by good individual performances mm-hmm. to, to get through things. Uh, so I completely take on board that the performances have to be better but if I was Neil Lennon and you were judging me, this is a results-driven business. If we win every single game 1-0 from at the end of the season and play poorly, everyone will take that because the 10 for 99.9% of Celtic fans, if you, just, if you do one thing this season, what's the one thing you want to do? I think they're all going to say 10. And for me, everything else that's happening that reduces the risk of making the 10, you have to deal with them. Get rid of them. I've said before in the podcast, Europe, no interested. Any other season, for me, Europe's more important than the league because that's where you're judged. Not, you're not judged against Hamilton Ackies. You're judged against Sparta, Prague or Lille 
or AC Milan or Napoli or whoever. For me, that's where I want to be. The big nights at Celtic Park, getting farther, you get to the last 16, the last eight, that would be brilliant. But no, this season, this is the 10 season. Now we're in a position now that we're out of this Europa League. So we shouldn't be playing any of our main guys. Callum McGregor should not play another Europa League game. Because if he gets injured, that's going to impact on the 10. Big Ayer get injured in the European, the, the Lille game, yeah. That's going to impact on the 10. So any of that kind of stuff, don't do it. And I also think that there's been a lot of talk about he's not playing certain players like David Turnbull. Mm. Why is he not playing David Turnbull? Because he's meant to be the, the best young Scottish player about. I don't think he trusts him. Not he's, because he's not, he's not a good player, but, there, but there's no evidence there. And that's why Lenny will always go to, for these experienced guys all the time. So how do you know he's going to handle it? Well, you play him. What games you play him? Europa League game. We've got a League Cup game coming up in a couple of weeks. I think that's still to be drawn. Who we're going to play? The League Cup game should be just, you know, packed with Sorrow and Turnbull and Dembele and I don't disagree Connor with that. And those guys. <clears throat> I don't disagree and the same with the European that. games because I get the point about if you win these European games, that breeds confidence and momentum. And mm. what have you? Mm-hmm. Who cares, right? Because it's the ten, right? Now I get maybe if you do well in Europe, that may come on to the next game as well. But if you play a weakened team and you lose, does that really matter? Because if you're saying to people, "Well, I like to win the ten, I like to do the treble this year again, I like to do last year, I like to do well in Europe," that's too many things. And if you just cross it in one, and if that's your objective, everything else impacts on that. You have to make that go away. Whatever it's going to be. And that's my view. And that's why I think he wants his experienced guys because he knows he can depend on these guys. They've been there before. Mm-hmm. And what if he does play David Turnbull against Hibs and he has a poor game and we lose the game? And also, if you're, if you're Neil Lennon, that's the other thing that, that we've got no idea of. We knew Celtic fans watching the Motherwell game. If we drop points, Neil's away, basically. And Neil's a clever man, so he knows that as well. So you imagine when, when Motherwell scoring that goal with 20 minutes to go, if you're Neil Lennon, you're sitting in a dugout. This might be your last ever game managing Celtic. Maybe your last ever game as a manager. Maybe your last ever game involving football. You become a pundit or you go and have a nice quiet life. Which you should do, Lennon should do and have just enjoy his life. You know, because the stresses and strains he must be under just now. So he's thinking 20 minutes to go. This could be me finished. You know, So he's under enormous pressure. And because of the nature of the 10, we've dropped three points more than other guys. Any more than I think the board would act, he'll know that more than anyone. So every game's a knife edge. Why is it a knife edge? Because he dropped those three points. Why we dropped the three points? Because we'd half a team missing. I mean, I'm not excusing the performance. Second half performance was appalling, absolutely appalling. We should have done better than that. But if we'd have lost the game and played quite well, I'd have said, fair enough, we've half the team missing. What a difference James Forrest would make to that attack, goals and assists. What a difference Christopher Julian, he was outstanding last season. Him and Big Foster won the League Cup between them. Mm. You know, so things you've said before, this season could come down to one point or one goal. Yeah. Other things I was looking at the other day, they scored eight last week, but we've actually scored more goals per game than they have. Our issue is we're letting in goals at the back. We've let in almost a goal a game, and there's a goal every five games yep. on average. That has to be addressed. Why has it not been addressed? Have we had everyone fit? Oh, Big Christopher Julian not playing. Do you play him Easter Road? There's no match fit. Mm, there's a risk. Throw him so in after a serious injury. You know, there's know. so many permutations to go through. Yeah. There's a situation with Bain and Barkas. What do you do with them? 
I'd always play Barkas, that's why you paid the big money for the guy. Or you signed Marshall in the pre-season. Um, now, on your point, and I've been very vocal about my sticker twist answer, Jim, and anyone who watches the podcast knows my feelings on it. Neil Lennon's current tenure going into the Rangers game, he had a 80% win rate in his current tenure. So that isn't combining, obviously, his first spell at the club. Now, at that point, he was quite some distance ahead of any other manager in the history of the club. Uh, the closest to him, actually, when you're looking at a win rate percentage-wise, was Martin O'Neill, 75.53. Now, obviously, in the last seven games, there's been a dip. There's been a dip which has resulted in a loss, a loss, a draw, a draw, a win, a loss, and a win. Now, that means that his win percentage rate has plummeted down to 75.86, but it is still, this tenure is still the most successful in terms of win percentages. His overall, incidentally, is 71.66, which is second only to Martin O'Neill. So yes, I have made my feelings known, but when you start looking at the figures, yeah, I do understand and I totally accept that, you know, this season, even though we weren't playing well up to the Rangers game, I don't think we were playing well, we were racking up the points. The last seven games is really the big issue. And then you throw into the mix as well, and we spoke about this before, Jim, and I know your feelings on it. My biggest concern is is some of the comments made by Neil Lennon, you know. And I think back to the, the Brendan Rodgers comments, the Terminado, the, the infamous interview talking about... Um, his ambition not matching that of the clubs or vice versa. So a lot can come out of these these interviews with the managers. And I think when Neil Lennon started talking about the culture, that's where I thought, well, you know, performances haven't been great. Form is temporary, but a culture, uh, you know, change is required before a culture changes. That was my big right, concern. I think, I think I said last week, I'm not so sure he actually meant culture, but maybe he did. I thought he meant attitude. I think he said attitude as well at the end. It's also because, again, you mentioned the point last week about dealing with modern players. Mm. And maybe Neil's a bit old school with this stuff. Uh, he played at a time when people would, would would want to play games. Could it be that maybe they've got a few niggles and maybe they don't want to risk these niggles where he wants them to go out and play for him? Maybe that's a culture, is that an attitude change? Because in the continent, it tends to be that if you're not 100% fit, you don't play. So maybe once, maybe one or two of the players, just to, you know, if you're not only 90% fit, Go and do his a job. Maybe somebody's saying, "Oh, I'm not 100." percent That could be anyone. Mm. Could be, but it's maybe more likely to be maybe sort of non non UK guys. Maybe so. Here's a point. You're talking about the modern player versus. I'm not going to call him an old fashioned manager. I'm not going to call Neil Lennon an old fashioned manager, but a manager, let's say, perhaps of a different era, Jim. So why then, or how? What I would be looking at is how did someone like Alex Ferguson deal with the modern player. How did Alex Ferguson adapt? Because obviously he was dealing with what I would guess would be classed as elite players in the last X amount of years of his managerial career. And the way that he did it is by employing pe- other people who could, uh, who didn't need to adapt to the way that Fergie had to adapt. So although he was still the figurehead, he had coaches, etc., assistant managers, and he continually changed them, you know. And I think that was key to success. The issue that I've got with that situation, if indeed that is the case, Neil Lennon hasn't been able to select the people who might be able to be that bridge between him and these modern players. He hasn't selected them. I think, I think that's an issue. I think, well, I, 
definitely is an issue. But I think it's getting back to the point that we don't we don't know how the how the system works within the coaching staff. So if a player's got something they want to say, who do they go to in the first instance? Does they go to Gavin Strachan? Go to John Kennedy? Do they go straight to Neil Lennon? Does Neil Lennon not get involved in any of that stuff at all? No bit about putting the putting the putting the hand on the shoulder, giving a kick in the backside. Who's actually doing this kind of stuff? Uh, and because we don't know that, I don't know what Gavin Strachan does. I don't know what John Kennedy does. And I really don't know what Neil Lennon does. I know he's the manager. I know he picks a team. I'd like to think he picks a team. I mean, maybe he doesn't pick the player who, who he'd like to sign. And that's the issue that we've, we've maybe touched on before. Who decides on the tactics? Don't know. Who decides on substitutions? Don't know. So I'm not sure who's doing what. But you'd like to think the manager is doing most of the stuff. Mm. I don't think Lenny takes the training from what I've kind of read before. So is that Gavin Strachan and John Kennedy? Because the shape of the team's been been, been poor. We're losing daft goals. Watching the Scotland, bring it back to the Scotland game last night, it was a great shape to the Scotland team. You know, they weren't exposed. You're not telling me that Shane Duffy is not as good as big boy Gallagher last night. You're not telling me that Shane Duffy is not as good as Conor Goldson. Right? You're not telling me, because Shane Duffy's a really, really good player. He's been exposed. It's, it's almost like it's a kind of cold winter day and Duffy's out there with his flip-flop and his T-shirt on and his sandals and, and, and he's getting really, you know, Exposed to the elements, whereas if you're Conor Goldson, you're out there with your, your duffel coat on and your woolly hat and your gloves, nobody, you know, you're not getting to him. People are getting to Duffy easily. They're getting, they're getting to a back four or back three really easily. So what's that to do with is that, is that the midfield? It comes back to shape. It comes back to the shape of the team. Mm-hmm. And again, do you say, well, the shape of the team is poor because everyone's not fit and available? Well, we've not had the best team, in my opinion. We've not had our best 11 players on the park this season. I think Griffin Eddie up front for me is like the first thing you do in the team and if you have your best 11 players and they're playing in a shape and a formation that they're used to and they play 6 or 7 games together I'd like to think they would, they would certainly kick on if they didn't kick on there's something fundamentally wrong but we need to get you know the best players playing and playing in a in a fashion and a system that actually suits them that's not happened and that is what's happening with team across the city and the points prove that and the performances not I think that that's that important they show that as well they're playing well and they're putting points on the board we'll be not playing well but putting most of the points on the board mm-hmm. the deficiencies are at the back and then you might have a school of thought that says well defending starts from the front so how do you do that so because we don't know who's actually implementing these uh, tactical decisions within the club we don't know who to point the finger at, but ultimately the manager carries the can with the stuff. So yeah. as long as we keep putting the points on the board, I would tend to stick. If we drop a point, then I think it's inevitable that we'll have to twist. The beauty but, of this, Jim, is we'll continually talk about it at least once a week. So we'll see how your view changes regarding the position, depending on the performances and the points. As, yeah. the, as the season goes on now, before... I go and actually speak to those of you who have tuned in on YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. Just the last few points on the the, the game last night. There was a game, apparently, last night. Um, But apparently, Jim, I'm being informed that we were told this wasn't live. There was a delay with the network and you were singing and everything just while we were waiting waiting for it. So a few people enjoyed the prelude to the show. Was 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 it Edgar Summertime? It wasn't, although it should have been. The bold Edgar, yes. 
um, because I know you enjoyed the session last week. Now, before we get into the, the nitty-gritty of the comments uh, from our viewers, a couple of wee points. Firstly, Lee Griffiths, absolutely agree with you, Jim. To take that first penalty was, you know, nerves of steel, brilliant, deserves the credit. I think that was his first international game in two years. Would I be right in saying that? First international game in okay. two years. Well done, Lee Griffiths. Um, finally back in the international fold, which I think is superb. Callum McGregor during the week, Stephen Presley, XL, Stephen Presley said he should have been dropped. I think Callum showed us why he is pivotal, not only to the Scotland he was, side. He was, a, he was walking side. to any team in Europe, yeah. Callum McGregor, because uh, gets the ball, we could have four or five guys around him, he'll take the ball, he'll play a pass, he'll move, he's passing and moving, passing and moving. I don't think we've had the best out of him this season. Again, is that down to the shape? The shape. He has to be played further forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think in most of the SPL games, we don't need two whole midfield players. If we stick somebody, I'd, I'd always play a back four. It's up to me, I'd play a four, four, one, three, two, is what I would play. And have somebody sitting in front of that back four. Scott Brown's the obvious guy to do that. And don't let him cross the halfway line. Just stay in your own half and protect that back four. Get two full backs, El Hamid and Laxalt, only one E-bomb forward. There was, there was a bizarre thing at the start of the Motherwell game last year, last last week. There was that two, two minutes going and Laxalt was, was, was trying to shut down the goalkeeper. Mad. Madness. You know. So, we have to keep shape. Brown there, then I go Jamesy Forrest, Christy McGregor, and Eddie and Lee up front. That's, that's, that's my, in my opinion, that's the best 11. So there's no place for Moe Elanusi, there's no place for Turnbull, you know, there's no place for Yeti, Clamala, these guys. That's the best 11. Find the best 11 and stick with it. And at the risk of getting slide again, as somebody slide me in last week, Make better use of substitutions. Uh, I made a comment last week about, you know, I would all stick on two at half time because you're not telling me in England this season they're, they're still having used three subs and, and Pep's going mad about it, Klopp's going mad about it, they all went five subs. You're not telling me that if they'd five subs down there, they'd be very clever in how they'd use the five subs. You don't have to be a genius to work out. We were talking there about the 60s. In the 60s, up until about 67, 68 or so, you didn't have substitutes. So there'd be, you know, European finals, international games, where somebody gets injured in the first 10 minutes and they have to play with 10 men because there's no subs. So they brought in a substitute in the late 60s. In the late 70s, maybe early 80s, you have two substitutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, 90s, the thousands, they bring in three substitutes. So you don't have to be a genius to work out in 50 years' time, as opposed to going back 50 years, we'll have seven, eight, nine substitutes. And therefore it becomes a tactical thing. Like... American football. There was a bit of that last night. He puts one Lee Griffiths to take a penalty. Mm-hmm. That's why he was on. And that was a good move. That was his good substitution. Three, three bonkers substitutions, but one good one at the end. And that helped us win the game. So in years to come, there'll be more use made of, of multiple substitutions. And they'll be like American football. You bring a guy on to take a place kick. That's what happened last night. So I think we have to be clever. We are, we've got the, the best squad. We've got depth of squad. And we've got five substitutes. And what I found infuriating in the last few games is it's taken us ages to make the substitutions. Because even if we're playing well, we've got so many games, so it's a chance to rest players. So if you want to see David Turnbull and we're two goals up, stick him on. Mm-hmm. Maybe Lenny's like me. Maybe Lenny's still in that endurance section until we get the third goal. Because if Ryan Christie just scored the third goal just before half-time last week, we go in three goals up. That was the ideal opportunity to bring on a Turnbull or bring on a Sorrow. And I just think, again, if I was Neil Lennon, 
I'm not 100% convinced with these guys yet. And my job's on the line. You know, and what if I brought on Sorrow and Turnbull last week when it was 2-1 to Motherwell and didn't have Scott Brown on the pitch? <clears throat> my job's on the line here. Can I really depend on these two young guys who've hardly kicked the ball? No, I can't. Therefore, I'll keep the guys on the park that I know can do a job. And that's why I think if we ever get into that three goals ahead, into that enjoyable section, watching the game, then they'll put all the guys on because the game's sewn up at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And that's why Europe, when we go to Sparta and we go to Milan and we have Real back at our place, just let's see what Turnbull can do. Let's see what Sorrell can do. Let's see what young Karamoko Dembele can do. Let's see. Because these guys, it will be for the off. Another thing that, you know, I think what you're going to talk about is how did last night's game affect Celtic? If you're David Turnbull and we've just qualified for the Euros and you're the best young Scottish player, you want to play in the Euros. And if I'm David Turnbull, I'll be going to see Neil Lennon as soon as possible to say, look, if you're not going to play me, put me in loan. Put me back to Motherwell or Hibs or Aberdeen because I went in that Euro team. Mm -hmm. right? and that's my ambition. And you can say the same for maybe Scott Bain. I know he's had, had games. What if he starts to get left out? Because Scott Bain was in the Scotland squad last year. Greg Taylor, another who's not getting a game. He's in the squad, the Scotland squad. How long do you keep Greg Taylor in the Scotland squad if he's not kicking a ball? So he'll be going to Neil Lennon and say, look, you know, I want to keep my place in here. What about Ryan Christie? How does his performances for Scotland affect his Celtic career in a different way? Well, I think, I mean, I think, in my opinion, I have to keep adding that, that I think there'll be, a, there'll be a lot of people leaving at the end of the season, whether we do the 10 or not. I think there'll be a, a new start, a new era next next year eh, after the season finishes. I mean, Ryan Christie, it's been it's been said that he would quite fancy leaving. His dad has been quoted about he could do a job down south. The other thing, if you're mixing with all these other guys, if you're Ryan Christie and you're mixing with Kieran Tierney and Andy Robertson... Oh, it's the old one, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I was watching the game last night and eh, with one of my sons and I was talking about how good the Motherwell players were and I was saying Motherwell players are maybe on £1,000 a week or something like that and Kieran and Andy Roberts are on maybe 80 90 grand a week so see how he Googles it and he tells me some numbers and I'm saying well that's just somebody's guess mm. and he said Andy Roberts is on 100 grand a week and, and Gally has on 1400 that's what he said now that could be rubbish right but it must be in that kind of ballpark figure right so if you're Ryan Christie you know again I'm completely guessing this thing what, 15 to 20 grand a week? Something like that. Maybe that's a kind of... Eight. Eight? Stunned. He was on he was on £1,500 a week at Inverness Cali. So you know stuff. That's so that stuff. that jump at that age was a phenomenal jump. If you imagine... Goodness. One, one moment you're making £1,500 a week, then you go up to eight grand a week. But I think that's, that's a huge jump. That's the nature of football. And he's on that because of that one performance against Hearts. He came on and showed what he could do. And mm. there's no reason to think that David Turnbull could do the exact same thing. If David Turnbull's on in a game because we need him and he and he scores a goal for 30 yards and he, and he puts a great performance in and he makes it difficult for Neil Lennon to leave him out, he becomes an extra Christie. Mm. But that's how quickly football turns. So it does. And I think that, the point I was making there, I'm, I'm stunned by that number. Eight. I'm stunned by the number. Is that maybe why he's not um, too keen on an improved offer and at that's this totally time. understandable because, yep. as I said, in, in my simple mind, who's trying to guess things, I'd have thought 15 to 20. You've said eight. Yeah. Uh, and if Andy Roberts and Akeon Tina are on a number that's maybe north of 80 grand a week, and these are just, I think I said the first week of the podcast, it's just nonsense. It's going to turn anyone's head, Jim. It's going to turn anyone's head. 80 grand a week. Yeah. What, 10 times then you're talking about it. If it's 80 mm. grand, that's 10 times. So I think he's good enough. I think Ryan Chris is good enough to play in the top league down there. Not for one of the top teams. Maybe I can have, 
I don't know, Newcastle and Aston Villa. Well, you see how they developed. You see how McGinn developed. I mean, no one, whilst he was at Hibs, would have said, there's a boy that could play for the top six teams in England. He goes to Villa. And now, because of that that period that we've seen other players, you know, improving within that period of uh, acclimatisation, I guess, in the new league, Robertson being case in point, going to Hull. I think you've said, how how will qualifying for the years affect Celtic? I think it'll affect individual players Mm -hmm. who want to be part of the squad. I don't think Lee needs any more motivation. Get back in the team, win the 10, but he's an extra motivation. Get down to Wembley, play against England, replicate your two goals again. So, so Griffith won't be in that squad, and it's no guarantee he'll be in the squad. Ryan's in the squad, Carl Mack's in the squad. Once Jamesy gets fit, he's in the squad. So there's three defence in the squad. Greg Taylor, unless he's playing regular football, he's a maybe. Scott Bain is a maybe playing regular football. David Turnbull plays for the under-21s, plays quite well for them. I don't think that's good enough to get in the top squad unless he's playing regular football. Then on this flip side of that, you then say, well, if we have a lot of players playing in the Euros, how does that affect next year's European campaign? With the qualifying rounds, hopefully it's in the Champions League. Uh, that's a negative for next year. But I don't think Carl McGregor nor Ryan Christie will be here next year at Celtic Park because I think you just told me a number that I'm stunned by. Mm. And that's even that's me even more convinced that I don't think Ryan Crystal will be here. So even if he plays in the Euros and he and he leaves Celtic, should he leave Celtic, that doesn't affect us anymore. I think Carl McGregor, he can play for anyone down south. And do you know what he's on? <laughs> Whatever number he's on, it's going to be multiplied by a big number if he goes down south. And if he's mixing with the Kieran's and the Andy Robertsons of this world and Stuart Armstrong's of this world, then he'll know the money that's in offer. This is the big season, this is the ten season. Next season will be a bit of, I think it'll be a bit of a damp squib. I think next season will be a hugely hard sell for the Celtic board. How do you sell all these? Notwithstanding COVID, and obviously that was that's why the league. Team. That's why the league is so important, though, Jim. You know, um, not only to retain players, to attract new players. And I said this yesterday. Players always, you know, talk about players putting themselves in the shop window. You know, playing in Europe. I think Celtic put themselves in the shop window playing in the Champions League. Oh yeah, absolutely. Any other season, yeah, definitely, I agree with that. In terms of the Euros, you've got Christie and Calmac who put themselves in the short window. I think we may end up getting more money for them then if they put in a good Euro. I don't think James E. Forrest is going to go anywhere. I don't think Lee's going anywhere. So so if they go there, then in terms of they might be inaccurate for the European campaign. Because that's what happened the last time we qualified. There you go. Come back to Scotland. Last time we qualified was 98. Mm. And Celtic had, we just stopped to 10. So it's like a monumental season. Uh, Scotland qualified for the World Cup we stopped the 10 and there's quite a few games put at Celtic Park in the qualifier we actually qualified at Celtic Park we beat I think it was Latvia 2 nothing to qualify that was the game that we qualified but we had uh, loads, we, we had the most number of players went to that World Cup of any other club in the world and we had I think we had 8 with Scotland we had Gould mm. Boyd McNamara uh, Tosh McKinley was there yep. Lambert Burley, Donnelly, Jackson. Jackson. So Is that eight? Jackson played the first game. Wow. In fact, did, 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 did Tosh not play the first game? I think it's Brazil. I seem to remember... Tosh McKinley played and Darren it, Jackson played. Was it Brazil he played against, was it? And, yeah. And no disrespect to either Tosh McKinley or, or Darren Jackson, they were they were the first picks to play against Brazil in the opening game in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the last maybe 30, 40 years of Scotland international players... You know, Tosh and Darren wouldn't be up there. There'd be loads of guys that are, you know, would be classified as much, much better than them. But they were in the team to play Brazil. So, so we'd lost 
didn't lose. We'd, we'd eight players involved with Scotland and with other nations as well, whoever qualified that year. And then Wim's away and Dr. Joe comes in and he has to deal with that. And Dr. Joe did really well. That's a different conversation. Uh, so there are there are positives and there are negatives about qualifying for the Euros from a Celtic point of view. If you're, if you're that section of the Celtic fans where you're a Scotland fans as well, then it's just dead exciting. Uh, if you're the other two sections, then it doesn't matter. On the point of Christy, when you're looking at the wage structure at Celtic, when you're looking at uh, the disparity in wages between Celtic players and international players, and you then consider the impact that Ryan Christie has had in the Celtic first team since his arrival, um, since you know his re-emergence rather, not his arrival, his re-emergence under Brendan Rodgers, because it was obviously Ronnie Dyle at the bottom, then you think to yourself, he should be in the top bracket when you look at the impact that he has, Jim, I spoke last night about this selfishness, but through that selfishness you get the goal, and we've seen it so many times with Celtic, people n- never complain when he swings one in at Hamden against Aberdeen like he did. Yes, I know that time and time again, I actually, watch the goal last night, and I'm not sure who the Scotland player is, just off centre on the right-hand side, he's screaming at Ryan Christie to, to pass the ball just before he scores the goal. Yeah, I get that frustration, but if you're looking at the top category of performance at Celtic, Ryan Christie's in the top three or four, would you agree? What I find fascinating... But he's not when it comes to wages. Again, being an accountant, what I fascinating is actually how to manage the disparities. You know, so if, if you and me are working for the same organisation, you're sitting there and I'm sitting here, and you're on three times what I'm on, and we're kind of doing the same job, then it's understandable that I will feel mm. annoyed, frustrated, until I'm getting the same wages as you're getting. That's just human nature. And you talk about modern footballers. Yep. And there's, we've got 28 in the squad just now. That's, that's the first team squad. Huge squad of 28 players. How do you manage all their expectations oh, in terms of that's a huge wages. part, yeah. And who does what? Now, the word in the is Shane Duffy's the highest paid player there. Whatever Shane's on, he's on, whatever. So if you're on, you know, a quarter, a fifth of what Shane Duffy's on, and he's not playing particularly well, and you're playing well, then the first thing you're doing is knocking Neil Lennon's door to say, hold on, I'm worth more than this. But as soon as one guy does that, somebody else goes, hold on, I was on the same as him, now he's on twice as much as me. You know, and it's, and, and it's a... It's a I think it's a unique thing, football clubs, in terms of how that's how, how, how you manage all that stuff. And that's really tricky to keep people happy. Because at the end of the day, uh, uh, and I don't think it's players being selfish, but players knowing their own worth mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And if you or I were a player, then you would find out what your own worth is. And that's why we had a situation. And one of the reasons, again, I think, that we won the league last year in the second half of the season is we put the points on the board the other team didn't. They had loads of internal wrangles going on at the time. Because one of the players who had been trying to sell for a while, they had to keep putting his wages up, apparently. Because they, said if you, if they were saying, if I'm a £20 million player, you've got to pay me as a £20 million player. So his wages up and up. So what kind of friction would that might have caused to some other guys? So they said, hold on, he's getting this, we're getting that. That's not fair. So you have to actually manage all this stuff. And we will never, ever see that, because that's all rightly so kept in-house. Yeah. But there are all that kind of frictions going on. And the other thing, if you're a really talented, if you're an Odson Edward, and if things go well over the next few years, this guy's a multi-millionaire. This guy earning four or five million pounds a year. Easily, if things go well. So he has to be selfish. He has to look after himself. 50-50 ball? Don't think so. You know. 
do you put yourself on the line? Because there's all the stories about Michael Owen a few years ago, mm-hmm. who apparently refused to play. I think he was, he was out of contract at Newcastle. I might be wrong here. This is what I think happened. He was out of contract for Newcastle. They'd one game to go. They had to win the game or they get relegated. And he thought there was, there was a bit of a tweak in his hamstring. He didn't want to risk it because basically he was out of contract. So if he, if he, if he did his hamstring in, he couldn't get a transfer away. And Michael Owen's going to command, you know, even more money than an Eddie would command. So you have to kind of put yourself in the mindset of the player, not the fan. Because for the fans, you're thinking, it's 10 in a row. You know, it's 10 in a row, Eddie. But for Eddie, he's thinking, you know, this is my life that we're talking about. My wages. I have to look after myself. And you have to manage that in such a way. And there's wee stories about, well, maybe, maybe Neil's not developing the players as well as he should have. Maybe these guys are a bit hacked off because they've came for PSG or they came for Man City and maybe the you know certain things aren't working out the way they want. Because at the end of the day they want to be at the top of the game. Mm. If I'm Eddie, I want to play for the France uh, first team. Yep. I want to play in a World Cup final. I want to win a World Cup. I want to play in the Champions League. I want to do what Moussa Dembele's doing. You know, I want to uh, go to a top team, earn top money. And, and what Moussa's done has been brilliant. It comes to us and what, what I like about Moussa when you see him in Social media, love Celtic, watches the games. So we've got this guy, he's given us a couple of seasons, we love him, he moves on. And that's the model we've got. And whether we like it or not, that's the model we've got. And again, I think that's really difficult to balance. So the game plan is get a Moussa Dembele, get a Victor Wanyama, get a Virgil van Dijk, and get him here for two or three seasons, be successful, and have the next guy coming in to take his place. Sounds dead easy, but it's really, really difficult. And for every Victor Wanyama we've had, we've had a I'm sure you could name a whole troop of guys that, you know, that was a bad buy, that was a bad Oh, there's been so many more bad than good, Jim, on that. And a lot of them were signed by the previous manager. Yeah. As well. Big boy, uh, who's the guy who went to Belgium? Midfield player. Sved? No, no, big lads. Ibu Kouassi. Oh, Kouassi, yeah. £3 yeah. million. Pound, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so... Again, Having be, played 19 senior gonna, games. I was going to say, to, to be fair, we didn't play many games. No. You know, so we didn't actually get to see him play games. So I think what makes football fascinating for me is, is not just on the field stuff, it's the off the field stuff as well. And then that's what came back to where we started off this conversation with people's opinions on what they think. We've got no idea what's happening within the Celtic dressing room in terms of who's, you know, Neil, John Kennedy, Gavin Sarkin, who does what, how do they do it? Uh, the players, uh, what do they feel about things? Are they annoyed at what they're getting paid? Are they annoyed about how they're getting trained? Are they annoyed about whatever it is? And imagine to pull that all together is a, is a phenomenal skill. That's why I think, Jim. I think, I think Rogers did that. I think Rogers managed to pull and get people pulling in the same direction. And I think you've got a better chance of doing that with younger players coming in who are not earning the big money. But once they do start to earn the big money, you need to manage that situation as well. And I think it's incredibly difficult. Uh, and you do need, what are you going to say, an elite manager to do that? No, I think you need a director of football, actually, to do that. Because I think that takes a lot of the onus off yeah, the, the gaffer, you, you know, your Neil Lennon figure, to actually look at the, the football side of things. And even if there's a wrangling in terms of a contract, which obviously there is at the moment with Brian Christie, he's looking for improved terms. It's, they've not been forthcoming. It's now getting to the point where maybe he is looking elsewhere. And that takes the point up that Kenny McAdam's making here. Christie is a very good player. And as I say, I think he's in the top three or four. If you look at our bracket, if you look at our squad and the impact that these players have, I think Christie is in the top three or four performers and I think his wages should reflect that. 
But if his head has been turned and he wants to play elsewhere, then get the best deal for him and sell. Only want fully committed players wearing our beloved hoops. Now, there's been occasions in the past where I think people have agitated for moves, without a doubt, uh, Jim, without a doubt. But I don't think Ryan Christie's performances has, have ever been affected no, by no, whatever's no. going on in the background I with think, his wages. I think, I think his actually brilliant. It's yeah. great. And I think, getting back to this idea of it, about the balancing act, uh, we could have sold Dedrick Bayata apparently for £9 million. And it's like conversation we've had before. See, we see it really quickly. It doesn't sound a lot of money, but it's £9 million. We've lost £9 million because we didn't manage that properly. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to say that's a scandalous thing to have happened. So how do we learn lessons and not do that again? How do you get the most uh, money for one of your players? You know, are you going to play clubs off each other? When do you sell somebody? When's the best time from the club's point of view? Because this is all about the club. This is not about players. Uh, getting back to my thin skinned and somebody saying about, you know, you can't do this and bring players off after 45 minutes. It's about the team. We have to do things that's best for the team. If you take somebody off after five minutes, it's not working. Tough. That's what it is. You, this is, this is the, the top level of football. right? So there's no room for sentiment. And this stuff, you know, Neil Lennon has been a fantastic servant to Celtic, but if, if the results start to go a bit pear shaped, he has to go. No, no sentiment at all. Uh, but I don't think the results are at that stage yet. I'm sort of kind of dangerous. The point with Bayata was that I think that's incredibly difficult to manage mm. all that, and I think you're right. Lenny has to have some help, or whoever the manager is, there has to be someone else. Because the other thing that I get annoyed about. Is, is Lenny's getting left on his own too long to answer too many questions about too many things? And I think uh, the management of the club, not the football management, but Peter Laws and whoever else is kicking about there, they're leaving Lenny pretty exposed to the stuff. So we had this situation where there was an inconsistency in terms of how the Scottish government, how the SFA dealt with a couple of players from the other side of the city. Celtic have a statement out straight away. I'm not a big fan of statements, because I think the team on the other side of the side are putting out statements every two minutes about things, but there are certain things that you have to comment on. And it's unfair for Neil Lennon to have to comment on those things. The tackle last week, the club should have come out. And what I'm not a fan of doing, I'm not a fan of pointing fingers. I'm a point of asking for clarification. So the guy last week, Cole, Devaney Cole, whatever his name was, right, comes in reckless, dangerous, could have finished the boy's career, Celtic should come out and say, can we just clarify this? Are these tackles yellow cards from now on? Just so we understand. Mm. Are these yellow cards from now on? Could you answer our question? Don't say we're outraged by this. We'll keep it. Clarify the position for us. Is this now a yellow card? Because next time we get a player who's sent off for that, we've already said we're peace. And we need more more statements, more involvement. And other things about, you know, people get, you know, things in... Because Neil then came out and said something about it. And that should have been the club. And there was a journalist who, who's on BBC Scotland then tweeted something. Uh, and I think this guy's just at it most of the time. And he said something like, Neil Lennon should watch what he wishes for. Because if the Scottish government had been consistent, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, hold on, just stop there. You said, if the Scottish government had been consistent, that means they were inconsistent. You journalist guy, can you tell me why they were inconsistent? What was the reason for the inconsistency? I'm not going to get involved in a big debate, a big argument, but just clarify for me 
why they were inconsistent. What's, what's your logic behind that? Peel that away. The thing about the COVID thing, why did this happen? Why did that happen? That's, that's not Neil Lennon's job. We need the club to come out and support him, particularly this season. Because that guy, that, that tackle last week, and what happened at Tannadise, and what happened at McDermott Park, club are silent. They have to say something. They have been silent. Now, unfortunately, Jim, there's been a wee technical issue with your video camera. So what I'm going to do is I am going to run through a couple of the comments that have been made on the social media channels. And then we've got a wee message in relation to a Glasgow institutional um, venue that we need to speak about, we need to raise awareness on. So, Jim Warren, I don't know what happened here, but that camera completely just went on the blink. Good taste camera. And uh, first of all, John Coyle doesn't understand why some fans are on Christie's back, and that's not because of last night. Well, John, I agree with that, and people do call me a bit of a Ryan Christie happy clapper and a fanboy and all of these different things. And the big part of that is, I just think performance-wise, Ryan Christie is in the top three, four players in our squad this season, last season, um, and probably the season before that. But then if he's looking at how his wages are in comparison to these other big hitters, these big players, and he's nowhere near them, then that is going to cause an issue. Now, Liam, Liam Brackenbridge reckons that Peter Lowell thinks that he's the director of football. What's your thoughts on that, ladies and gents? Um, what do you reckon? Now, I did mention earlier there that uh, I did read some sad news yesterday in relation to McCool's Bar. Uh, you'll be well aware of it, at 40 High Street in Glasgow. And they really are struggling. Now, I know a lot of us are struggling just in day-to-day life, but obviously businesses have been hammered. They've been hit really, really hard during the lockdown, during the pandemic. And there's going to be an aftermath as well, isn't there? We know that. It's going to stretch into 2021. There was a message on the Facebook of McCool's which read, uh, after 27 years, McCool's is in a fight for its very survival. So if you want to see us make it to 2021, we need your help. We are back open today from 9am and operating as a cafe, serving fantastic coffee, breakfast rolls, lunch and brunch. So I guess all that I would like to say is I'd urge you if you're able, if you're in the area and you fancy a cup or uh, a breakfast or lunch roll, nip into McCool's and support them. And I know that other businesses need your support as well. I do believe this is a an institution in Glasgow. Uh, I think back to an event that I did there with Brian McClare um, and Nicky was just brilliant. You know, he's he's a legendary figure uh, around those parts and uh, to the Celtic fraternity as well. It would be so sad, and I know that there's going to be a lot of casualties, sadly. There's going to be a lot of casualties. It would be so sad if they weren't able to to keep McCool's open and going for when we get back to watching the football. Uh, my memories of the place range from the League Cup final 2012, probably the worst time I've spent there uh, before and after the game, after the Kilmarnock defeat, right through to, as I say, the the uh, afternoon I spent in there with Brian McClare where Chalky was on top, top form. So please support McCool's. And what I want to do, and I've not run this by uh, those in charge, but I want to take the cameras out there uh, maybe sometime next week and have a wee chat with people in the bar and outside the bar and raise awareness uh, that they are struggling. We need to support them as much as we possibly can. So it is my intention to do that next week. Watch this space. 
we've got a cameraman who now works for a Celtic state of mind and we've been talking about it this morning I'll be talking to some people who may live quite close to the area to see if we can get them in for a few interviews uh, just to raise awareness, save McCool's. Let's make sure the place is still there for us, just like um, it has been all of these years, 27 years strong. Now, as I say, I love having Jim Orr on the show. For some reason, the camera packed in. Um, so we will have Jim back in next week. One last point on Christie. On when what? Christie's contract is up next summer. And doing things right by going out and playing well either gets a better deal or moves on a good contract for himself. As I say, I actually think that his performances um, have been uh, excellent over the piece and uh, he certainly has not taken his eye on the ball if you were to look at his performances. All of that stuff's happening behind the scenes. I think Celtic need to to actually offer him something uh, in relation to what other players uh, are being uh, paid within the top three or four players uh, at the club. That's my opinion. It's all about opinions. I need to thank each and every one of you for getting involved today. So thank you very much, Jim Moore, for joining me on A Celtic State of Mind. Cheers, Paul. What's up, guys? This is MMA fighter Clay Guida, and I'm not afraid of anyone or anything, but losing my hair was an entirely different kind of fight. So if you're suffering from hair loss like I was, then you got to check out my boys at Bosley. Pound for pound, they are the champions of hair restoration. That's why I turned to Bosley to get my hair back. The entire Bosley team was so professional and kind from start to finish. All it took was a simple one-day procedure, and I was on my way back to rocking my full hair again. So take it from me. Don't wait if you are thinning or receding. I'm so thrilled with my results, I just wish I would have went to Bosley sooner. It's time to finally knock out hair loss because the best is yet to come. Check out Bosley today. When MMA fighter Clay Guida was losing his hair, he trusted Bosley to get it back. Now it's your turn. Get a free information kit, plus get a $250 off gift card when you text SCORE to 203203. That's text SCORE to 203203. Don't wait. Text SCORE to 203203. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Sports Social Podcast Network. 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 Sports Social Podcast Network.